are you doing today? Good, good. Happy uh, Bloomington summer. Sorry, kids in school, you're not done just yet. But uh, congratulations to all the graduates. Um, my name is Jesse. I'm, I'm on staff here at church. And I was thinking yesterday uh, just kind of about moving into this season of rest and how I'm really, really bad at that. I think I had like done nothing for five minutes yesterday and I looked over at Emily and I was like, oh, I'm bored. Because we live in a world obsessed with entertainment, uh, addicted just to superficial things, materialistic pursuits. We love the newest, the biggest, the best, new iPhone, new car, new house, next social media thing, newest fashion, whatever it may be, we love the glamour and the pomp and the glory of what's bigger and better, but it's all so transitory. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 2016, and yes, amen, and if you don't know about that or you don't care, it is a huge deal. It had been over a hundred years since they'd won the World Series, and the first, the first World Series that they won is, is debatable if it's even legitimate. So anyways, the parade that followed had been dubbed Cubstock 2016 after Woodstock. There was an estimated five million people. That's on the low end of the estimate. Five million people that went to Chicago for that event. There was a huge rally in Grant Park, a six-mile long parade. The team was in big buses and people were chanting up and down the streets. People were, they were jumping into the river that was dyed blue, obviously, and they were falling and jumping off of light poles onto crowds. And to be honest, they were just giving glory to the Cubs. But then the next day, after it was all done, the crowd just kind of dissipated and evaporated. No doubt there were remaining festivities. I'm sure people were partying for too long. And uh, for the most part, though, people went back to their normal lives. Millions of people left. And they've all but forgotten that event, because as Cubs fans, we expect another World Series. But we'll see if that happens this year. Cultures, though, for years and years have done this. We latch onto a movement a uh, political leader, maybe, maybe something that uh, is just a big deal to us. We think that it's going to be different now. Things will be different and better. We have big ceremonies and parades to commemorate things like sports, and then we forget about it. Today in the Gospel of Mark, we're at a pivotal point. We're going to read about the triumphal entry of Christ. Jesus coming into Jerusalem and beginning a procession that's going to be different than anything else in all of history. We're going to read about a glory and a celebration that is not transitory, not fleeting, and of a kingdom that has no end. And how we are to live in that kingdom now in light of these truths. So if you'll please stand with me. We are going to be reading Mark 11, 1 through 25. It's a long, long passage. That should be on uh, page 847, too. If you don't have a Bible, there's some, some Bibles in your rows there. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back back here immediately. 
And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also... Excuse me. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord, uh, for the sunshine, um, just that we can come and and gather and worship, uh, worship you together, Lord. That is a gracious and awesome thing that we get to do. We thank you for... um, just this time that we get to learn from your word, Lord, and pray that you would just speak to us by the power of, of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Please work uh, in and through um, all of our hearts today. Help us to rely on <clears throat> just on your grace and what, uh, what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. So there, there's a lot in this passage. Uh, there's no getting around that. So we're going to work through it kind of in some big chunks. First, we're going to see what was accomplished in this triumphal entry of Jesus, and then we'll examine the meaning of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And then we'll examine some warnings we see from this fig tree narrative and kind of what that means for us today. So, the passage starts with the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now, it, it seems odd that Christ would enter on a donkey, does it not? Because when I think about the procession of a king, a donkey is not what I would have had in mind for that. But Jesus is doing this to fulfill a prophecy that we can see in Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, 
to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus consciously is fulfilling a prophecy that was over 500 years old. But he didn't just fulfill it, he surpassed it. Because in biblical culture, animals that had not been put to use, that were devoted to sacred tasks, were those who, who had never been put to any ordinary use, like any work at all. And we see in verse 2 that the cult is, is on one which no one has ever sat. So what's even cooler, though, is that this prophecy of this king has even deeper, deeper roots. It goes all the way back to Genesis 49. If you just keep going left in your Bible to Genesis 49, we read about Jacob and the blessing that he was giving to his sons. Jacob told his his son Judah in Genesis 49, 10 through 11, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So the idea that this Jewish Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey was rooted deep in the Israelites' history. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. So he enters and the people are lined up and his disciples throw clothes on the donkey for him as his saddle. And it says that many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means Lord, save us now, or save us. The laying down of garments also has roots in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 9.13, there is a narrative about the king Jehu, when he was anointed king of Israel after Ahab had lost his place there, and the people took off their outer garments and put them on the road and put them in his path, and he walked over them. So remember, up to this point, Jesus, he is ending a journey in which he had been in Galilee, Samaria, Perea, and finally Judea. News of his miracles were spreading. His teaching and his hype was going before him. He had, just ra- he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and most recently he had healed blind Bartimaeus. So as the pilgrims were going before him to Jerusalem for the Passover... His fame was spreading. People believed, oh, here comes the Messiah. He's coming, and he's going to begin his reign as king. And he was, but not in the way that the people thought. As we read on, it says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. So in this triumphal entry, Jesus did not just have his eyes set on the city of Jerusalem, but primarily on the temple. In 586 B.C., the priest Ezekiel, sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple. You can read about this in the book of Ezekiel, primarily in chapters 10 and 11. This was during the time of Jerusalem's destruction when they were getting exiled into Babylon. God gave a vision to Ezekiel. In this vision, Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple, and then it leaves the east gate and goes up the mountain to the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel eleven twenty two through 23 says this, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So here in Mark, 
the glory of God, Jesus had come back. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, in 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was the glory of God. Nobody knew that the King of Glory was there to fulfill what He had set out to do. He starts his entry on that mountain and he winds his way down on the east side of the city and he makes his way to the temple. It's important to remember that Jerusalem at this time was under Roman rule. They did not like that. They were occupied. The Jews did not like that. So they think that when the Messiah comes, the kingdom that's going to be ushered in is going to be largely political and it would take place then and now, and they would overthrow Rome, and they would be back to whatever they were doing before. But this is not what Jesus set out to do. Jesus was fulfilling his purpose here on earth to take on the sins of the world, to redeem a people for himself in the glory of God. He came to inaugurate the kingdom and his rule as king over something that went way beyond just something on earth. A rule that would go beyond Rome, And all of history after that. The section ends with verse 11. It says, And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? All of this triumphal entry stuff, all of this celebration, they get to the temple and it was late, so he goes out to Bethany with his disciples. The people saw no action that day and they left. We can presume that as he made his way to the temple, they were just leaving because it says once they entered the temple, once they got there, he just left with the twelve. So everyone had already gone away from him. So they go up to Bethany, back up to the town on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And this whole account of the triumphal entry just has so much more than meets the eye. Growing up, I'm like, cool, man, Palm Sunday, I think this is a great story. This is an excuse for me to have, you know, like in Sunday school... Uh, we don't do it here, but we would get palm branches and someone, some, some poor dad would be the guy who had to be Jesus and ride on, he might ride a bike or something and we would lay them down. <laughs> this was target practice for us. This was like, pop! I got Mr. So, you know, that's what, that's what I thought the triumphal entry is about. But it's so much more. It's not just a cool way for Jesus to fulfill these prophecies and enter Jerusalem. He's not coming just to bring political power. Jesus came to fulfill what had been prophesied about him in the Old Testament. We have seen in these 11 verses how much, how much was fulfilled. And it's really important that we recognize how rooted our faith is in the Old Testament and the, the history of Israel. This is just a quick aside because um, I think it's important. I think the Old Testament can at times seem kind of boring, maybe. We're like, well, we live in, we have a new covenant now. The New Testament is our time. And, And we often don't look back at all that was prophesied about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Christ. Jesus fulfills all the law and all of the prophecies about him. Only in the perfect life of Christ can we be made clean. Christ accomplished that for us. 
when he died. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again, conquered Satan, sin, and death. And we see it clearly now on this account. But Israel at the time did not see it. And we, like Israel, often forget what God has done for us through his grace. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem with the purpose of finishing what he was sent to accomplish. The nation of Israel at the time missed it. And that is what we're going to learn from the next section of this passage about the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple. We'll look at this account kind of broadly because um, it's important to do that to kind of see what it means. Uh, and then we'll narrow in on some practical things because I think it's, it's fascinating how similar some of these observations are to us today. So back in uh, verse 12 through 14, it says, On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to, to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. There have been plenty of issues with this account of Jesus cursing the fig tree in verses 12 through 14. People view this as something kind of unnecessary. Like Jesus was just acting out of anger. Oh, I can't get food. I'm just going to smite that fig tree. That poor innocent fig tree doesn't deserve that. But Jesus isn't cursing this fig tree just because he wants to punish it. Okay? It was yet another symbolic act. Jesus cursed the barren fig tree because he wanted it to be a visual parable to his disciples of what was happening in Israel. The fig tree was a symbol for Israel. There are many accounts in the Old Testament, many passages that show this. Jeremiah 8.13, Hosea 9.10, Joel 1.7, Micah 7.1. The fig tree stood as a tree that could produce good fruit, but when the fig tree was barren, it was used as a symbol to show how Israel was going to have destruction coming for them because they were not living in light of, of the truths of God. Jeremiah 8.13 says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Israel had become a barren fig tree. In the distance, it looked good. It says that it was in bloom, in leaf, is what it says. And when Jesus came to it, he found nothing but the leaves. It looked like it was good, full, and satisfying, but it was barren, so Jesus pronounces a curse. And Mark moves right along to tell us about Jesus cleansing the temple. And I'm sure at the moment the disciples were like a little bit like, oh my gosh, what's this guy doing? He just killed a fig tree because it didn't have fruit? But Jesus was showing something so much more, and I think that they see it as they enter the temple. So they, they get to a place called the Court of the Gentiles. That is where uh, this account, that's what this account is talking about. And it's a walled like big walled marble paved area adjacent to the the south side of the temple it is somewhere around three football fields long two and a half football fields wide that's enormous enormous and it was the largest part of the temple complex back in genesis god told abraham the patriarch of the jewish people that he and the people coming from him would be a blessing to all the nations 
The people of Israel were to proclaim the truth of God to all people. So the court of the Gentiles was created to offer a space for Gentiles to come and to worship and to see the glory of God on display. Isaiah 56, 7 says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. But it wasn't happening. Jesus says, no, it's become a den of robbers. Because over time, this space was opened up uh, as a place for, really for, for leaders to get, the Jewish leaders to get money. A place that had been for years considered holy ground, where the glory of the Lord had filled the temple, had become a marketplace. There were sacrificial animals for sale. Money was being exchanged. And uh, the leading people that oversaw this made a ton of dough off of this. The Jewish historian Josephus estimates that somewhere around 255,600 lambs were sacrificed at one Passover in AD 65. That's a little bit later, but I'm sure that it was pretty, uh, pretty similar at the time of Jesus. That's a lot of lambs. We're talking about a madhouse here. Kent Hughes, uh, author and pastor in his commentary on Mark, says this, Merchants shouted from their stalls to the customers, and noisy, haggling, pushy pilgrims jostled one another for position. The incredible din was heightened by the constant bawling of livestock. The aroma of the livestock, accentuated by the enclosure, made it like a county fair, and the stock exchange all rolled into one. I don't know if you all ever been to any county fair or stock exchange, but I, I can't even imagine. This was a place in which the Gentiles were supposed to be able to know and to fear and to seek the Lord. Where God was to be worshipped and all people were to understand his glory. And the Jewish people, the nation of Israel at large, were conducting themselves in a way contrary to this. It brought distraction to the nations instead of an example. So Mark is clear about what Jesus did. He overturned tables. He drove people out who were selling and buying, and he wouldn't allow anyone just to use the court as a pass-through. And I don't know if you've ever seen anybody flip a table or do some type of act like that, but it is not nice. It's a violent, serious act. It's not neat. I think we often portray Jesus kind of as like hair flowing in the wind, probably wearing chacos, <laughs> kind of like, you know what I'm talking about. And I, but I don't read this and see that. I see somebody who takes his father's house, the temple, seriously. And don't get me wrong, there is nobody who is more kind or loving, or gentle than Jesus Christ. But that does not mean he was a pushover or weak. He's described as meek, right? Meek means strength under control. Meekness does not equate to weakness. Jesus is serious about the sins of the people and about holiness. He's serious about the whole world knowing God. The nation of Israel had the appearance of holiness, but they were, like the fig tree, lacking fruit. They had a majestic temple. They offered, obviously, 255,000 sacrifices in one period of time. They held festivals, but they did not live according to the purposes that God had for them. And we see the result of this. Verses 19 and 20. And when evening came, they went out of the city... 
As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. The fig tree was withered. Didn't just lack fruit now. We're talking dead leaves, dead branches, all the way to the roots. The sickness went way beyond the surface. And this is symbolic of Israel's fate. So what does this mean for us? Practically, what can we learn from this? The fig tree and the temple cleansing, they now stand as a warning to us. We studied James last summer, which was awesome. And we learned all about the fact that saving faith would be evident by the fruit of righteous living. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, You are a choice... A cho- choisen. My gosh. A cho- you, can laugh, you, know, you can laugh at me when I say choisen. That's fine. <laughs> a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. On this side of the resurrection of Jesus, the body of Christ, the universal church, us locally are called to live out a life that portrays the excellencies of him who called us from darkness into light. We are covered by the grace of God and nothing can pluck us from his hand, no doubt. But like the nation of Israel, we're called to bear fruit. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Where have we created barriers in our community that distract from the God we worship and glorify with our lives? What are the things that distract us from living fruitful lives? Jesus says that people will know we're his disciples by the way that we love one another. Do we love one another in a way that's attractive to those who don't know Christ yet? I fear that Christianity, and I hate to generalize, I I promise, but in our culture at large, we have distracted ourselves. We view Jesus as a means to the end we want, not as the end. The one who will bring about the change we want politically, culturally, We want prosperity and comfort. And we forget we're a holy nation. A people purchased by the blood of Jesus for the glory of God alone. Please don't hear me saying, though, that our faith does not play a part in the way we approach and seek to change culture or politics or anything. Jesus is Lord over all and should reign in every sphere of our life. But we can't just pick and choose the things we like and say, yeah, I'll take a little bit of that. And say, but over here, God, no, I'm not. Uh-uh. Can't touch that just yet. I loved last week, you know, Chris talked about how we take even good things in our lives and make them idols. Food, drink, family, jobs, recreation, even community, right? All good things, they can quickly become about us. Jesus is Lord over all life. Corporately, we have to take a good look at this. What does it mean to be zealous for the glory of God? How do we shine our light before others and proclaim what Jesus has done for us together? We've been saved by grace, but called to holiness. We are propelled by this grace 
to glorify God in all of our life. Because we are living in the midst of people who need to know this grace. We are the nation now that is called to both preach and actively live out the gospel of the glory of God. And we have the opportunity to do that, or we can be fruitless. I love in Romans 12, when they talk about the marks of a true Christian, there's a few verses that talk about seeking to outdo one another and showing honor, seeking to contribute to the needs of saints and showing hospitality. And the important word to, to look at there is seek, right? It's an active word. We don't just wait for it to come to us. We go after it. Do we, like we learned just a few weeks ago from the mouth of Jesus himself, make ourselves last in the servant of all? Or do we want to be served? People are watching and there's no time to waste. We're not on that I'll do it tomorrow diet thing. It's time to love and serve one another now. Jesus flipped tables because the glory of God was that important to him and the people of God were not showing it. But it's not easy to do, right? I'm just, I just give you a laundry list of questions. Oh, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Of course we're not because it's impossible to do on our own power. The only way we love one another is by having a true heart change, being gripped by what Christ has done and being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this heart has to be something that we constantly assess and we renew in repentance and faith day after day after day after day. Towards the end of this passage, it says, have faith in God. Trust that God is good and what Jesus has accomplished, and that Jesus has accomplished your salvation. We simply have to pray in faith and ask that our hearts will be aligned to God's will, not ours. We read that whatever you ask in prayer and believe you have received, then it will be yours. Now, this is a verse you've got to be cautious with. Because there has been a whole vein of theology that has been created today based off of a misunderstanding of this and a few other verses. It has to be taken into the context of the whole council of Scripture on faith and prayer and asking for things from God because sometimes God does not answer our, our prayers in the way we want. You cannot manipulate our Lord. We're to have faith and a correct heart posture towards God and in that we will see His will, His plans are ultimately good, and we have to trust that he's sovereign. But we should pray still and ask. We should ask, hey, I need to act, I want to love others, God. Help me do that, because I can't do it on my own. I can only fake this so long. We will get so burnt out if we try to do it in our own power. When we approach one another with the idea that we are serving and worshiping God and not man, that changes everything. That actually makes it easy. Then when we get hurt or offended or taken advantage of, we can rest in the fact that our goal is to display the glory and the love of God first and foremost. And we are to follow Jesus in the way that we love one another. We're here to worship God, not man. I wish we had time 
to get into all of the relationships of faith and prayer and the tensions, but we don't. The point that I want to make is you cannot live this life that displays God's glory on your own power. We're too difficult, we're too weak, we're too stubborn. Jesus Christ lived perfectly, fulfilled these prophecies about him, came as a king not to establish just an earthly rule, but one that's cosmic in scope. He died for your sins, and one day he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth in a fullness of his kingdom that will be everlasting. If you've put your faith in Christ and you understand that you cannot do enough good to be righteous but can only rest in that, then you have been saved into a community of faith and you are called to worship God with your words and also with the fruit that comes from a changed heart. We are the blood-bought community of Christ followers, sustained by the Holy Spirit, and this ought to produce joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. When people enter our church gathered and when they see our church scattered in our homes, let them see that we serve the living God, a holy God. And let's have our worship show that, the, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let's be that fruitful community. So we're going to take time now, an opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper. Um, this is a time for believers to come forward and remember the work that was accomplished for, for us on the cross. We, were, we remember that the juice or the wine represents his blood that was shed for us, and the bread represents his body that was broken for us. And it's a symbol not to be taken lightly. Our sin is serious, and Jesus died for it. If you haven't taken that step of putting your faith in Christ, then now is the time to do it. Jesus offers abundantly more than you will ever, ever know. And if you have any questions about that, there's going to be pastors and prayer responders out here in the gym that would love to talk with you about anything. Um, and if you just need prayer, please take advantage also of that, that, that time that, that we get. We take communion here by coming up the middle, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Uh, there's juice and wine to take as your conscience leads, and the wine is on the cups marked with the twine. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, Lord, and we thank you that you have saved us into a community that is meant to show your glory. And we admit that we cannot do that on our own. We can do nothing on our own, Lord, but you have sent Christ to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. He came and died for us, and now we can rest in the fact that he has finished all this work for us, and we can serve you alone, Lord. Help us to do that. As we go from here, God, on mission, help us to share your gospel in word and in deed, and help us just to wrestle with the areas of our life that we have not given over to you to be Lord over. Father, I pray that you would help us to be joyful and to recognize that all of these fruits that are coming are done by you alone as you work in and through us. And it's not just a, a list of rules, Lord, but it is a joyful way of living to glorify you because we look forward to the day 
when we worship you in its fullness forever and ever. We thank you so much for your love and your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.